so much truth in that song, and in fact, so much truth in all of the songs that we have sung today that will be uh, that that are based on the the passage of scripture that we will be looking at this morning. Before we get into the text, I need to ask you: Are you a, a Lord of the Rings fan? Big Lord of the Rings fans here. My wife and I first read The Hobbit and and the Lord of the Ring trilogy, uh, Rings trilogy back in the early seventies. Uh, excuse me, the the late seventies, early eighties. And I've been a huge fan ever since. Uh, when I heard that Peter Jackson was making a movie about it, I was pretty excited. Not that I knew anything about Peter Jackson, but enough people that I knew did. And they said, this guy will do a good job with this these movies. And even though the books were better, like they are always better, the books are always better, uh, the movies were probably just about as good as they could have possibly been. I hope, well, let me just ask, how many of you have seen the movie but you haven't read the books? The seen movies but haven't read the Bible. Shame on you, those of you. You didn't knew you were going to be shamed, did you, when you raised your hands. But the, the, the books are always better, but I, I understand. It's just easier to watch the movies. Now, I love the music in the movies. Howard Shore was the composer, won Academy Awards back in 2002-2004. Lord of the Rings was a complex, multi-layered story, of course. If you've seen it, you know that. And the music was was written to accommodate and enhance the movement of the story. The story kind of flows and the music would, would go with it as, as it always does. So, I mean, there were several musical themes that alerted you to the presence of a character like Gollum or, or one of the elves. And there were certain sounds that let you know that a bigger picture was in view, like, like the, the, the theme surrounding the ring itself. Uh, my favorite motif and easily the most identifiable, it's, it's like I can hear it right now. Uh, portion of the music is, is the, the portion which identified the hobbits were in play or the shire. It was always that, that, that sound. Sometimes it was light and airy. Sometimes it was very soft and reflective. But it almost always indicated and created a sense of home and security. The Lord of the Rings... The book, the screenplay, the musical score, all were extremely well designed to tell a story and reflect different themes under the umbrella of what at least was clear to me to be one major overall theme, that there is order and purpose in the universe, even in the face of temptation and evil and suffering. Furthermore, we are called to respond to the circumstances that are in front of us. Frodo was constantly saying, look, I didn't want this responsibility to take this ring. I didn't want to be the one to have to take this ring to bear it. And Gandalf would wisely reply, Frodo, it's not given to us to choose what is before us. What is given to us is to choose how we respond. Indeed, that story taught us a whole lot about life. And any good story finds its way back to the primary theme or themes. And it helps you to grasp much of what a gifted author intended for the story if you're aware of what's at the core of the story. You can just gain so much more from that. Now, let's shift over in our thinking about Scripture. You'll call, recall a few weeks ago, I, I guess the students weren't here, but Sean told us that God is telling a story in Scripture all through the Bible. And at the same time, we discussed how Scripture is so much more than a book that is crafted by creatures. It is the Word of the living God, the Creator Himself. The only reason Tolkien and other people are so good at crafting and, and, and telling a story and moving a story 
to teach something important is because they're made in the image of God. It's not like the Bible. Oh, yeah, well, the Bible's pretty good, just like J.R. Tolkien. No, Tolkien is made in the image of God, all these storytellers, and so they reflect how God thinks, and they reflect those who are especially skilled in particular areas reflect how God is. But it's only a picture of the real deal. Our text this morning, First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 25, is a good place for us to talk about the various themes that we encounter in Scripture. Uh, and, and especially in this text, we see the gospel of Jesus. I mean, we're going to approach this text a little bit differently than usual today. Before we read it, I, I, before we read this passage, I, I want to state some of the, the themes that you see both here and in all of Scripture. In many ways, this this text is kind of like a microcosm for Scripture. There are themes that are found here that are found in other places in Scripture. Uh, and, and, and constantly we see, as, as we were told a few weeks ago, that Scripture is always pointing us to Jesus. To be more specific, though, as we sung about, as we sang about much today, the, the, the Bible is pointing us to the cross of Jesus. Now, if this introduction seems long to you, it's because it's more than an introduction. It's part of the sermon. Actually, this is going to be part one of the sermon. It sets the stage for the reading and the explanation of the text. When you absorb these themes that we're talking about, the interpretation and application of the passage will begin to take shape even before we begin to examine uh, the verses themselves. Now, I know that so many of you are frustrated because you didn't bring a pen and you want to write these down. So so just in case that's your story, we have these for you. If you guys will pass those out, because I want you to have these themes in, in front of you when we look at the text. They're up here now and you can look up there until, until, until they get to you. But the first theme in our text, and the point of this is, there's a lot about this this passage this morning that I'm not going to say. I just don't have time. I mean, we could spend weeks and weeks here. So the point is, these themes and these principles that are in Scripture will help bring meaning to what's being said. And you'll be able to figure out a lot of this on your own. The first theme in this text is that our sovereign creator God is a God of order. God had a purpose and plan in mind before the world ever began. What an encouragement to know as we, we considered last week that we are chosen and called to be His children. And as we learned the very first week in First Peter, that we have been given an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, and undefiled. I keep coming back to that thought over and over and over as I watch my dad deteriorate with this awful disease of dementia that he has, I just keep thinking about the inheritance that is waiting him. It's just around the corner. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Everything wears out. Everything, everything wears out here. Nothing wears out there. It's it's perfect. That's what awaits us. What a blessing to know that. God Design and, and, and all of that is ours because designed, God designed our personal salvation. But in addition to that, He also established order among humans because He is a God of order Himself. Now, if you were here last spring when we talked about the Trinity, remember we, 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 we see in Scripture that, that the Godhead, the Trinity, within the Trinity, there is order. 
There's not rank, but there is order. God the Father, Son, and Spirit are equal. They're co-equal. They are all eternal. Jesus didn't come after the Father. He's always been here just like the Father has always been here as well as the Spirit. All three are eternal, co-equal. And yet there are very clear lines of authority and submission within the Godhead itself. Now, that is a model for human relationships. Such order here on the earth is complicated, though. When we start talking about authority and submission, it gets complicated because of another prominent theme in Scripture, that man has fallen and inevitably perverts God's established order. You know, you don't have to look to government. You don't have to look to Congress. You don't have to look to the White House. You don't have to look to the Supreme Court to see that we have perverted God's order, human order that He established. All you got to do is look in the mirror. And you're going to find somebody that has a particular desire to live in a way, and it ain't God's way. It's not God's way and God's design. We all are are driven to go our own way. And so when we start talking about authority and submission, it gets difficult. It's one thing to submit to a perfect and a holy God. It's another thing to submit to you know, a very unkind and loud mouth husband, as we're going to be called to do in, in, in a few weeks. Actually, next week, um, when we get into First Peter chapter 3, and it's difficult to submit to a government that is godless, and yet we're called to do it. There is good news in the midst of this fallen state, though. Our redeeming God has called out a people To love, obey, and glorify Him. That's a prominent theme in this book of 1 Peter. And we're going to see it clearly today. And we'll also see that even in a fallen world, God expects His people to follow His established order on earth. That gets tough. Look, if we were back in Eden, everything, again, it's easy. But, but n- nonetheless, in a fallen world, God expects us to follow His order. In fact, our faithful submission to established order on this earth, to His established order in difficult settings, points others to Jesus. In this section between here and, and, and 1 Peter 3, 6, we're going to see that God calls us to obey the government, even if the government doesn't consider the things of God. He calls slaves to obey masters, and even though we're not going to apply it in the same way, there are certainly places where it it comes into play in our lives, and he calls wives to be submissive to their husbands. These are even husbands that don't acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And, and, And so submitting, we point others to Jesus. They see the life of Jesus as Our text tells us how he just trusted himself entirely to God. But are we to submit only for the sake of giving testimony to others about God? Hardly. The next theme we see is that our righteous God judges rightly and will one day make all things right. God has put a sense of justice in all of us. And our sense of justice is often unusually heightened when a particular injustice is being committed against us. I mean, you know, it's, that's when we're ready to say, okay, this isn't right. 
I'm just not going to take it. But if you're decent, if you're a decent person at all, I mean, you you look at things and you say, that's not right. Something ought to be done about that. And our laws are are designed to not allow injustice to, to, to happen in our country, which, of course, the laws are circumvented all the time. But we have this sense of justice and we desire for God to make all things right. But And He will do that. And it's the knowledge of that that enables us to follow His established order even when injustice is committed. Well, that leads us to our next theme, which is that our faithful God can be trusted. Jesus trusted His soul to the one who judges rightly. Even when the right falters and the evil prevails, our sovereign God is trustworthy. What we see here in this life is not all there is. And our charge and our call is to trust God no matter what. Now, trust, if we're talking about trusting God, it manifests itself in obedience. Our caring God gave us a perfect example of complete obedience and trust through Jesus. I mean, Jesus was perfect. And they killed Him. And when He was on the cross, He didn't get it. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What have I done? What have I done? He was perfect. He had done absolutely nothing to deserve God's wrath being poured out on Him. And God turning His back on Him. It's not what Jesus had done, it's what we had done in, in, in Him in our place. But in spite of what would have to be considered the ultimate betrayal, Jesus said, into your hands I commit my spirit. It makes no sense, but I trust you anyway. His obedience was not easy. But it was complete and it revealed an absolute trust. Jesus did not come, though, only to provide an example for us of how to live and die. I mean, that's part of his work on the cross and, and we see it today. That we, we follow his steps in his suffering. He's our example and we follow that. But there was so much more about his, his death. Our text tells us that he bore our sins on the cross, which means he took God's wrath that should have been poured out on us. And it would have been poured out, justly poured out on us if Jesus had not intervened, if Jesus had not stepped in the middle, if Jesus had not sacrificed his life and taken our sins upon himself. And that is the gospel. And the truth of the gospel covers this text, and indeed it covers all of Scripture, Jesus died for sinners. Now, we often say that all of Scripture points to Jesus. That's true. It would not be incorrect at all to say that, that Scripture points consistently and continually to the cross of Jesus. And our life in Jesus only matters because Jesus died. It is through His death and then His resurrection that the penalty for our sin is paid and those of us who believe are brought into communion with God. But there is more. I mean, if it's true, as we talked about a few weeks ago, that the gospel is not only 
the story of salvation, but it is, a, in, in a sense, the story of... Then there has to be more than just our salvation in play, right? Implications go far beyond the time of our conversion. The gospel story. The point about Jesus' death. We'll see how it all fits together at the end of the message today, which is half over, by the way. We're moving in that direction. We're about to read our text, but before we do, I want you to just look at your sheet um, and, and, and consider... The themes, just before we read our text. So take just a moment and do that. So here's what we're going to do with the remainder of our time. We're going to read this text and then we're going to go back and, 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 and just kind of look at the different sections. There are about three different sections in here that we'll look at as a group of verses. I'm going to spend more time on some verses than others. We're not going to take anywhere close to the time that we could. But if you will look for these themes, both as we read and as... We spend time ex- trying to understand the text together, then I, I think a lot of this truth will, will begin to just materialize right in your mind as you give a special attention to God's Word. So let's begin by reading our text together, which is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. And if you would, please stand for the reading of the Word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Our Father, there is so much wonderful truth in this text. And there is so much difficult truth in this text. So we pray that you would, Lord, just do the work that only you can do. This, this story is, is so profound because it's your story. Story of the gospel of a creator God and a redeemer God and a story that will bring ultimate, complete and total glory to you. 
And as we are on this part, Lord, of our journey in this story, I pray that you would give us not only the instruction for living it, but also the sense and the understanding of how the Spirit of God and the, and the Son of God living in us can and will do that which we are incapable of doing ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. You know, it's clear from our text that uh, God has established government. Secular government functions to a degree as the Old Testament law did for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. When, when it, it punishes evildoers, it rewards those who do good. Now, there are examples in, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, of those who disobeyed their government for one of, one of several reasons, and God was pleased with them for doing so, whether it, it, it be because they were uh, encouraged to sin or if it was in a wartime situation or or um, if they were in the New Testament where the disciples were were commanded not to proclaim the name of Jesus and they disobeyed, they said, we have to. We have to obey God rather than you. Later, uh, Christians by the scores died because... They refused to say that Caesar is Lord. They said, Jesus is Lord. And they said, that's fine. You can say Jesus is Lord, but just say Caesar is Lord also. And they said, can't do it. So they died. Uh, they disobeyed the government in those cases. There are those cases in which we are, we are allowed and even called to disobey the government. But those are the great exceptions to the rule. God has an order and he expects it to be followed. And, and so many people tend to be exceptions oriented, you know. I want to find the exception. Look, if you want an exception, you'll find it. So so don't go looking for something. Occasionally it presents itself very clearly. But, but God has a particular way that He expects us to live in regard to our government. And that is, He's told us to honor the government and those who are in authority. So, And that's got to mean to give respect to those who are in authority. What about godless governments? I mean, what about democracies where not, where dissent is not only allowed, it's encouraged for goodness sake. I mean, we're, we're called to speak our mind. That's what democracy is all about. We get an opportunity to participate in how the government is, is structured and how it, how it functions. And it's a wonderful system. Oh, I, 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 you know, I, I, I know that, that, that we have the right to do that. Somehow I don't think um, I, I think talk radio and and the and the screaming at each other and the and the and the, and the horrible way we talk about our officials and we all do it depending on what side we're on almost all of us do it I, I think somehow that crosses a line in scripture I mean scripture doesn't address our role or responsibilities in these circumstances where we have this freedom to express our opinions or in a situation that is completely absolutely godless, like in, say, North Korea. We have to acknowledge, though, do we not, that um, (laughs) the established government of Peter's day was worse than our government today. I mean, far worse, most likely. You can make a case and say, no, 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 how can you say that murdering babies like we do through the abortion laws is is any worse than than the way it was back back in those days? Well, uh, you you may have a point, but 
when when just shortly after Peter's writing, the, the emperors were saying, you must declare that the emperor is Lord. And if you don't, you will die. I don't think we've reached that point yet. I don't expect us to get there too far in the future. Even then, though, there was a call for obedience and for honor or respect. Now, verse 17 helps put our priorities in line with God's commands. Notice that we are to honor all men, treating them with respect, and we're to honor the emperor, which in our case would be the president. But, you know, all branches of government would probably fall under this um, this command. There's a good chance, in fact, a real good chance, that of the last two presidents, the one prior to the one that we have now, you really liked one and you really disliked the other. Or at the very least, let's say, you really liked the policies of one and you really disliked the policies of other. And of course, you can say, well, I like this guy, but you know, I don't agree with everything. But for the most part, I like him a whole lot better than I like the other guy. It's highly unlikely uh, that you're one of those rare people that, you know, dislikes them all or you like them all. It's, it's unlikely. We have our opinions and we move in one direction or another. Can we, as Christians, are we allowed to speak out against their policies? Absolutely. I mean, we're called to, to follow the, 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 the structure of our government and our government allows us to do that. We can dissent. We can do that. We have the right to do that. We're afforded that right in our country and therefore in Scripture. But we should treat the office of the presidency and all of these offices with respect. Why? Because God has ordained it and He has commanded us to show deference. And I think that means not only to the office, but also to the person who occupies the office. That's my take on this command. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not easy. Does it mean that we agree and readily accept anything and everything a particular politician stands? Heavens no, it, does. it doesn't mean that. But I've tried to read this in many different ways. And, I, and the only thing that I can derive from it is that we are to honor the, the emperor, or as in our case, we're to honor the president with respect. And at the very least, it convicts me about some of the way that I, some of the ways that I talk about politicians. Man, I can say some ugly things about politicians. And it's like, you know, I've gone beyond attacking their policies to attacking them. You're a, he's a worthless, moral, in, immoral, you know, you just on and on. I talk about it. And, I, and I, I don't think Scripture allows us to do that. But honoring the emperor, put in the same category as honoring all men, is not at the top of verse 17's priority list. Fearing God is at the top. God is the only one we are to fear. Because sometimes we're called to disobey government. And if that's the case, then we have to fear God more than we fear men. Jesus said in Matthew ten twenty eight, we're not to fear those who can kill the body and that's it. He said, rather fear the one who can kill body and soul in hell. Fear the one who can kill the body and then cast the soul into hell. That's the one you better give absolute fear and honor and respect to. Then we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That comes next. Then ultimately show respect to all men and to government. And it doesn't get 
any easier in the next verses. And by the way, I know you're going to want to come up and talk to me afterwards. I got nothing else. That's it. That's all I got on that. You know, I mean, you, you could say, well, what about this? What about this? And you can come from either side. I, I, I don't care. That's all I got. So don't, don't, just don't, don't even go there, all right? I didn't go there for about ten minutes in this, you know, between the services, the first and the second service. It doesn't get any easier. Slaves were commanded to obey their masters cheerfully. Now you need to know that, that slavery in the first century was not the chattel slavery of, uh, of America in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, slaves in that day, and this will, be, this will surprise you if you didn't know this, slaves in that day were often paid for their services, and they might be doctors, nurses, musicians, skilled artisans, they were teachers, they were just in you know, all different, different strata of society, you, you, you found slaves. But they were slaves nonetheless. They, they were the property of someone else. And if a master, if they had a master who was mean, or took advantage of them, then life wasn't all that fun, even for a doctor. And they were commanded, though, when they were mistreated for doing good, even, to follow Jesus' example of remaining silent when accused and persecuted. I, we just don't, not in the South, especially in America, we just don't know what it means to so many people in other places to say, I'm a Christian. I stayed with a family in the Czech Republic several years ago on a, on a um, mission trip. These people were, this guy was very successful. He had several businesses. He owned a lot of property and that, that's highly unusual in the Czech Republic. Probably one of the wealthiest men in Prague. Certainly he was extremely well to do and successful. Almost his entire family thought he and his wife were not, absolutely crazy. Certifiable, you need to be placed in a mental institution because you follow Jesus. They literally thought that. We don't have any idea. That, that's what happened in that day. Because people said, I follow Jesus, they said, you have lost your mind. And they persecuted them. They said, how about some of this and we'll see what you think about Jesus. Peter said, God said through Peter, you know what? Submit, because when you do, and when you, when you take it cheerfully, when you take this mistreatment cheerfully, others are going to say, there's just something there that I don't have, and I want whatever it is this person has. I want, and it, you're pointing me to something that's bigger than you. Because I know this is not inside of you. It's, no, it's just not natural for a human being to respond this way when you're being beaten, when you're being disadvantaged economically and in many other ways, it's not natural for you to smile and be all right with it. You know, we're, we're, uh, we're not going to be able to apply this passage in the exact manner it was initially intended. But you think about, you think about all the different times where people take advantage of us or, or people are upset with us or, 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 or in, in some way, make life extremely difficult for us. They've done us wrong. I mean, our natural response is, is to be defensive or even to attack. You know, we don't say it, but, but we believe 
something like, hey, the best defense is a good offense, so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to attack back. But he's saying, look, do your best. Other places we're told, do your best to live peaceably with all men. But when it's beyond your control, you just have to say, it's okay. I'm just going to trust God, the one who knows everything. He judges rightly, and I'm going to have to trust Him. In fact, Jesus' life and example tell us that it is possible to be mistreated, to be misunderstood, to be abused, and to just follow the Lord. We should follow in His steps, according to Peter. Now, this is the verse you know from which what would Jesus do comes. The emphasis is without question biblical, but it can quickly lose its proper meaning and emphasis if we're not immersed in the gospel and we can find ourselves in a works-oriented kind of relationship with God, whether it be for salvation or after salvation. We, we, we sort of slide into this, I'm going to please God and He's going to be pleased with me when I do the right things and the best thing for me to do is to live like Jesus lived. It's funny, you know, Jesus' biggest critics and the people that He criticized the most were those who said, we want to be like God. And they were very self-righteous. And Jesus said, nope, you're, you're just making all of this work for you. The laws, some laws you've expanded, some you have, have brought in and narrowed so that you can have life good on your terms and on your level. Now, when Jesus did away with that works-oriented, there are some people who used Jesus' name and, and, and are in the same kind of way. They're very, very self-centered. I'm going to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. Well, what would Jesus do is a good question to ask, I suppose. But look, it's far more important for Jesus to be living inside of you and leading you and guiding you and doing the things for you that you can't do in your own strength. Salvation wasn't possible, nor is this life possible for Jesus in our own strength. The gospel points only to Jesus, not to ourselves and our good works, as we're going to see in our last section. All four verses of this section, verses 22 to 25, are dependent upon Isaiah 53. If you want to make the connection, you're going to have to write these verses down uh, because we just don't have time to go back and look at Isaiah 53. Though you will look at this passage in your home group this week. There's no doubting the connection, though, between Isaiah 53 and 1 Peter Chapter 2, we just see how Peter, over and over, his letter is just an under, a New Testament understanding of what God had already written in the Old Testament. Over and over he goes back to the Old Testament. And this is just loaded in Isaiah, with Isaiah 53, truth that comes from there. In some cases, Peter quoted a, a portion of the prophecy. In some cases, he alludes, just, just alludes to the truth there. Verse 22 quotes Isaiah 53, 9. Verse 23 apparently alludes to Isaiah 53, 7. And then verse 25 echoes Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. And then verse 24 uses words and ideas from four verses in Isaiah 53, verses 4, 5, 11, and 12. So there's a lot of connection here. It's clearly on Peter's mind when he's talking about Jesus. 
Isaiah 53 is, is the prophecy that is all about Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice, taking our sins upon himself, even though he was completely innocent and did not in any way deserve what came to him. It's clear that because of our fallen state, and because of the fact that we have to appear before a holy and a righteous God, we cannot stand there with any confidence at all. In fact, we can only stand there with dread if we stand on our own. But when Jesus stands there with us and for us and say, Father, this one belongs to me. He's trusted me. He believed that the plan that you put in place before the world ever began, that I would die for the sins of the world, he believes that to be true. He repented of his sins. He believes in me. He belongs to me. <laughs> it's our faith in Jesus' death that saves us. I, I agree with John Stott who said that the cross is the central point of all history. The problem that so many have with the gospel is that they understand the need for Jesus' death to be believed so that salvation can occur. But that's about the extent of the meaning that they find in the cross. And, and, and they just sort of move on. It's like, oh, the cross is behind me now. Now I'm walking in the promised land. I'm walking, you know, I'm walking in Jesus' steps. Well, Jesus' steps led him to the cross. And over and over, Scripture leads us back to the cross of Jesus. Verse 24 tells us, that Jesus died so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So, so the cross has a huge impact on the way we live. Just think of Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet, not I. But Christ lives in me who loved me and gave himself for me. I mean, it, it's all this Christian life is all wrapped up in the cross. I have to die. And Paul said I have to do it daily. And by the way, how do you... Do you can you crucify yourself? Halfway, you know. But then what? He has to be the one to put us to death. And how do we do that? We submit, just like Jesus did. We go to the cross without complaining. And when people spit, and when they spit in his face and they yanked out his beard and they blindfolded him and they hit him in the face and said, Okay, prophet, tell us who it was that did that, if you know so much. And he just sat there trusting God. When we die to ourselves, we just let him do the work. We must understand there is no living for Jesus without dying to ourselves. In short, there is no real living without dying. You know, in the the fictional series about World War II, and I, I'm, I'm not sure if it's based on a true story or not. Band of Brothers, and one of those, I've seen just a few of those, and language is horrible, but, you know, it depicts war and and um, so well. And this one guy, one of the ones that I saw, this one guy was just so afraid, you know, he just couldn't do, he was paralyzed with fear. This really rough sergeant or commander, I can't remember what his rank was, said, you know what your problem is? He said, your problem is that you're not dead. See all these other guys? They're dead already. I mean, they, they've already counted themselves as dead. That enables them to do the job that they need to do. But you, you hadn't died yet. So you're afraid you're, you're clinging to life. And you're never going to be able to do what you're supposed to do as long as you're clinging to life. 
That's what, that's the way we are, isn't it? I mean, we want to bypass the dying and go straight to the living. And when we do that, we get so enamored of the living and we start to think, you know, I'm doing a pretty good job here. And then it becomes works oriented. Our life in Jesus becomes really about me being Jesus' main man. You know? And doing the job. We begin to read Scripture, at, and, and, and if that becomes our frame of reference or that becomes our mindset, we begin to read Scripture in a way that tells us that if we really want to please God, then we need to get stronger and do better. The cross ain't about getting stronger and doing better. It's about dying. The teaching becomes you better kind of approach. You want to please God? You want to, you want to go to heaven? You better do this. Well, we're past that, most of us. I, maybe not. Maybe, maybe you think that because you belong to a church, you've been baptized, you do good things, you ain't as bad as your neighbor, then you're okay. Scripture says, nope, nope, there is no living without dying. You, you're not gonna get there like that. You have to trust what Jesus did on the cross. If you've got any hope of heaven. But if you've got any hope of living for Him, you're gonna have to die. Repeatedly. To yourself. To your own desires. What is it that you want? That you have to have to make life meaningful. To be fulfilled. If it's not that, it stands between you and the Lord. And until you die to it, you will never really live. You see, there are two ways of looking at God. Either you better, or He has. See, He's already done it. He lived that perfect life and then He died for our imperfections, way more than our imperfections, our sin, our rebellion toward God. That's what He did. And when we get wrapped up in that, that song that David sang, the, the special, the, there was a line in there that, that about being wrapped up in His wounds, being f- connected to His wounds. That, That's what we're being told in Scripture. And when we get to that point, we can truly say that our hope of pleasing God, our hope of heaven is in Jesus, in His death. And since I have believed and have become His child, I see it not as a duty that I have to do, but as a privilege that I get to do. And I know as I'm following Jesus every step of the way that it's His death that provides this incredible life for me. But this incredible life in this text leads us right back to the place of death. I am only worthy to live for Him because of His death. And He will repeatedly remind me of Jesus, what it means for Jesus to live through me. It means to live a life with the cross under the shadow of the cross. But see, here's the great benefit. And most of us never really want to get to because it just is too oh, intangible, too nebulous. We, we just We can't really put our hands around it. When I embrace the gospel, not only for salvation, but for all of life, One enormous benefit of suffering is that it brings me into close communion with the Savior, 
which is why Paul said, that's what I, I desire, to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Being made conformable to his death. God is calling us in First Peter to live pure lives and to find joy in communion with Jesus in the midst of suffering. And I do hope the word of the Lord is enriching your heart as much as it is mine in this study of First Peter. It's a living word, but it points us to the cross where we come to die so that we might live. Ironic, isn't it? <laughs> Life is only found in our dying. When we die with Jesus, we will live for Him, follow His example because we get to. Not because we have to, but because we get to. So how do we apply the command to follow in Jesus' steps without it becoming a works-oriented relationship? Well, I've been struggling to think about that, and I know you've been struggling to think about it also. It's, there, there's no easy way to say it, but our old friend, Fenelon, our 350-year-old friend from France, who we've quoted several times, put it simply and well, when he wrote this to a friend, and I just saw this this morning in my devotion, so I, I, don't have, I didn't have time to put it on the screen. Quote, he's talking to a friend. He said, your old nature, your old nature wants to be perfect. It will push you in every way to be an outstanding Christian. Please, Avoid this trap. Simply follow the Lord. Really brings it together, doesn't it? If you've been following all of this, it comes together. Simply follow the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for the, for the truth in your word today. And Lord, none of us want to suffer. And yet, when we understand the purpose that you have in our lives for suffering, and we recognize the close communion with Jesus into which we are brought when we suffer well, even when it's caused by an injustice to us, then, Lord, uh, we say, okay. And a great benefit is that others see our response and they see Jesus. Lord, we're called to be Jesus to the world in so many ways. And one of the ways is in this benevolence offering that we take this morning. Jesus understood the limitations of, of what we can do for the poor and for those in need. And Lord, that can be any of us at any time. We recognize that. We're not looking down on any. Body, we are all uh, only where we are because of you. But Lord, there are limitations and yet that didn't stop Jesus for always trying to end misery or at the very least bring light to a dark life in a moment. And so Lord, as we, as we together reach out to support those who are in need. I pray that we would do so with the love of Jesus flowing through us. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.